KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Children as young as 12 can now get the booster shot. But this is good news for younger kids because we can now protect them better from the Omicron variant. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. There are shortages at the San Diego Fire Department as Omicron spreads. Well, it's definitely gone up and down throughout the pandemic, but this is clearly the worst that we've seen. And if the last few days are any indication, we are not done with the increases yet. What king tides tell us about climate change and hear from San Diego jazz trumpet great Gilbert Castellanos. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Many local classrooms reopened today after the holiday break in the midst of yet another wave of coronavirus cases, many coming from the contagious Omicron variant. But this morning, the FDA made an announcement on booster shots for children. Here to tell us more about it is Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Sawyer is also a member of the county's vaccine advisory board. Dr. Sawyer, welcome. Good to join you. So this morning, the FDA announced it authorized booster shots for children ages 12 to 16. What are the guidelines for this age group that could soon be eligible for the booster? Well, we're still waiting for official guidelines. Typically, after the FDA approves a vaccine for a new age group, the CDC weighs in on exactly who in that age group should receive the vaccine. And the CDC is scheduled to have their advisory committee meet on Wednesday to to do just that. So I think by Wednesday or Thursday, we will have specific guidelines. But this is good news for younger kids because we can now protect them better from the Omicron variant. What about boosters for children younger than 12? Have they been approved? No, we're not quite there yet. We just started routinely immunizing that age group in November. So we have a few months before they would be eligible, at least based on the current guidelines for older adolescents and adults where we're waiting five months after the last dose before they get a booster. Are there any special circumstances for kids in that age group, five to 12, perhaps immunocompromised or anything like that? Yes, uh, it's a little confusing, but we usually distinguish a booster from a third dose. So people who have um, problems with their immune system like cancers or transplants, they are recommended to get a third dose instead of just two for their primary series of vaccination. That's been the case for adults and, and adolescents for many months. And now the, CD, the FDA is extending that down to five years of age. So this is not routine boosters. These are only for children who have underlying diseases that affect their immune system. And what is the state of authorizing boosters for kids between 5 and 12 years old? 
Well, I think we need to get some evidence, some data on how that works and, and whether there are any unexpected side effects. I don't anticipate that we will see that. The current new recommendation to add boosters for 12 through 15 years of age was based in, in a large part on data from Israel, because Israel is ahead of us in their booster campaign. So they had already generated some experience with boosters in the 12 through 15 to show that it was safe and that it worked. Overall, what is the latest data for the vaccine rate of children in the San Diego region? Uh, Have we seen an uptick in children vaccinations uh, with this latest surge in cases? We have certainly seen an uptick, but we're way behind in in the 5 to 11-year-old age bracket. I think the current estimate for San Diego County is only between 20 and 30 percent of kids in that age group have received the the two doses of the vaccine. So we have a long ways to go, particularly as school starts to reopen and kids crowd back together in the classroom. Are the new COVID cases predominantly the Omicron variant at this point? I actually haven't seen the latest data from the county, but in many parts of the country, Omicron has already taken over as the predominant strain. It is expected that it will do that here if it hasn't already, because it is much more contagious than the Delta variant, which was our previous predominant strain. Do we know more about the Omicron variant today than we did before the holidays? And does it affect kids differently than other coronavirus variants we've seen? We don't have any evidence that it affects children differently, but lots of children are getting infected because they're not yet immunized, because they haven't been eligible to get immunized. So just like in adults, if you're unimmunized, you're much more likely to get infected. So we're seeing that in children. In terms of Omicron in general, it does seem so far like it's less severe than Delta, which is the good news. Many people are getting infected, but not so many are getting really sick or dying from the infection. Have hospital rates for children increased over the holidays? Where do they stand now? They have started to go up, and certainly uh, hospital rates in adult hospitals are, are starting to swell significantly, so much so that we're worried about capacity again, just as we were in earlier peaks of COVID in our community. So we need to keep a close eye on that. People need to be careful, avoid the crowds indoors, wear a mask, and by all means, get vaccinated. Last week, Dr. Anthony Fauci predicted the current wave of cases is expected to peak in the U.S. at the end of January. Do we have any more information on when the peak of this surge is expected to hit San Diego? It's really hard to predict because it depends in part on the vaccination rate of the community, and San Diego is actually in pretty good shape compared to many other communities. We are seeing a rise in cases, but it would be worse if we had less people immunized. It's really difficult to predict, but it does seem like the peak will occur sometime in the January timeframe and then go back down again. Before the holidays, we spoke about the state of the vaccine for children under five and how the dosage was likely to be adjusted to increase effectiveness in these younger children. Do you have any sense of when children under the age of five will be eligible for the vaccine? The Pfizer company that has the vaccine that's been studied the best so far in younger kids under five is adding a third dose to the group that got two doses, and the two doses weren't enough to really provide protection for all the younger children. So we have to wait for that information, and that typically takes two to three months. So I think it's going to be three to six months before we see vaccine in the younger age group.
Should children under the age of five be in school or daycare right now, given the spread of this variant and their vaccination status? Yeah, that's an excellent question. At this point, schools are staying open, daycares are staying open. We, we've learned a lot about how to prevent transmission. The, the good news is younger kids, when they get infected, usually don't get severely ill, but they do serve as a source of infection for others in their family who may be. So that has to be decided, I think, on a school-by-school school or daycare-by-daycare basis based on the population and, and how many infections they have. But given your your background, do you think it's a good idea? I think it's still reasonable to send young kids to school, particularly if they're old enough to wear a mask, which keeps down the transmission rate. And we think children over two should be able to wear a mask much of the time or be outdoors. Certainly being outdoors is the best way to minimize chance of transmission. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, pediatric infectious disease expert with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As surging COVID cases continue to impact aspects of daily life, emergency responders are among the hardest hit by the growing rate of infection. More than 100 San Diego firefighters are currently in isolation due to potential coronavirus exposure, and the staggering number of staff shortages is having an impact on fire services throughout the department. Joining me now with more is San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lindsay Winkley. Lindsay, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So how have these shortages affected firefighting services in San Diego? So yesterday, we put together a story that sort of explains that because of the sheer number of firefighters who have either tested positive for the coronavirus and are in a state-mandated isolation, or they've just been exposed to the virus and they're sort of waiting on test results, the department put together what's called an emergency brownout plan. And essentially what that does is it outlines which fire crews will be idled or browned out if staffing shortages demand it. And what percentage of the department's staff is currently under isolation protocol? 113 firefighters are in isolation at this point, and there are 960, roughly, total firefighters in the department. So it's a, it's a pretty significant total. And how has the department responded to these persistent shortages? I mean, have they put any plans into place? You mentioned the brownouts. That is essentially the department's response to its staffing shortages. And basically what the brownout plan does is it creates sort of a a roadmap for which kinds of units or crews will be taken offline so that the department can staff as many positions as they possibly can. Uh, So the idea is if they don't have enough bodies to go around, which positions are they going to exist without on any given day? Are we seeing a noticeable delay in response times to emergencies as a result of these infections? It's definitely too early to say if there's a notable impact on response times, but department leaders said yesterday that that's obviously a possibility. You know, anytime you're taking firefighters or fire crews off the front lines, there's a possibility that that means that those responses to particular calls are going to take longer. It's also a risk to firefighters. 
you know, firefighters are obviously working within their own teams, but they rely on nearby crews to assist them should things sort of get out of hand. So if you've got less people who are able to respond to any particular incident or offer support during emergencies, you know, it's obviously possible that you're going to see some some impacts from that. But yeah, too early to say definitively if if we've seen anything that would be considered, you know, an impact from these brownouts. And one of the more notable measures taken has been the temporary closure of certain specialty crews like the mobile operations detail and the bomb squad. Uh, Can you explain their roles within the department? There are three specialty crews that are sort of first to be taken offline. That includes the mobile operations detail which is a, it's actually only a two-person crew that works only Friday and Saturday nights in the gas lamp quarter. There's also what's called Squad 55. That's actually another two-person crew. They work longer shifts, 12-hour shifts from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. in southeastern San Diego. And then you've got the Bomb Squad. So the Bomb Squad, another two-person team, has been its own team for about a year And when that unit shuts down, those two people actually just embed with an engine company. However, you know, if a bomb call occurs, they're still pulled off to address that incident. So although it sounds like that's the bigger deal, the bigger deal is actually when departments have such a shortage that they need to brown out engine companies. And those are the four person teams consisting of a captain engineer, firefighter and a firefighter paramedic that are responding to the vast majority of the calls in our city. As we mentioned earlier, there are more than 100 firefighters in isolation. Are we seeing the worst of this or has this number gone up and down throughout the pandemic? Well, it's definitely gone up and down throughout the pandemic, but this is clearly the worst that we've seen. And if the last few days are any indication, we are not done with the increases yet. We're going to be getting an updated total today, but 113 is higher than the 90 something it was last week. So it's pretty unclear how far this is going to go before it starts in on its downward trend. How has overall staffing fared during the pandemic? When we talked to the department yesterday about sort of the last time they saw brownouts, they brought up the September 25th incident, which involved an engine being taken out of commission. There were also a couple of other units that were browned out during that time. And just for comparison's sake, only 22 firefighters were in isolation or on leave to take care of family members with COVID at that time. Now, granted, there were a couple of other factors that were sort of fueling that brownout. There was a whole bunch of wildfires in Northern California, and so we had a bunch of people up there helping with that. There was also a fire academy that was canceled and the department was really counting on, uh, you know, a couple dozen people making it through that and they would have been hired. But this is nothing like what we've seen before. So we're very much a new territory right now. Are there any specific areas of uh, San Diego that are impacted by the shortages more than others? The short answer is not really. Now, it's really important to clarify that just because this brownout is in place, that doesn't mean that we are guaranteed to see units taken offline every day. It really depends on sort of the available staffing in the moment. Now, the department has identified about a dozen stations across the city that could be impacted by brownouts, but which stations they choose definitely depends on the resources that they have available today. But just to kind of tell people a little bit more about sort of how they chose those stations. Only stations that are called double houses are the ones that will be impacted by this. And basically a double house means that they don't just have an engine crew, they also have a truck crew. So even if they lose an engine crew, they still have people at the station to respond to emergencies. 
And today is the mandate for staff vaccination. Do we know how much of the department staff is currently vaccinated? Yes. So we do know that it's it's a fairly high total, at least as of mid-December. So about 83% of the city's firefighters were vaccinated. Um, almost 120 firefighters, though, were not fully vaccinated. And another 45 had not reported their vaccination status to the city. Um, there are about 85 who have requested medical or religious exemptions, and we are hoping to get updated figures on that today. And just to sort of answer the probably the coming question, it is unclear at this point how many firefighters currently in isolation are vaccinated. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lindsay Winkley. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Scientists and volunteers from here in San Diego to the Oregon border flock to shorelines to document the king tide. That's the unofficial term for the highest the tide ever gets. These king tides are increasingly important to record, say researchers, because they offer a look into growing threats to our state from climate change. KCRW's Kaylee Wells tagged along during last month's king tide. Here we go. Here we go. It's coming up. That was a big one. Dr. Michael Quill is the Marine Programs Director for the nonprofit LA Waterkeeper. He's taking pictures of the king tide in Malibu. We just had a wave come right up to the steps here. He's standing at the top of a staircase that leads to the ironically named Broad Beach. The beach is disappearing. I think there are another 10 stairs below the sand right here that are now, that's the high water line. Most of the staircase is buried in sand since the tide is getting closer. What's left is wet with ocean spray. From where the rocks are to this property, it's just dwindling away, dwindling away, dwindling away. I'd be kind of concerned if I'm sitting there in that house and the water's going under three quarters of my house. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Here's how king tides work. High tides come around twice a day, and they're especially high when the sun and the moon are aligned. That happens twice per month, when the moon is new and again when it's full. Here's Forrest Curtis with the nonprofit Heal the Bay. We have an elliptical orbit around the sun, and sometimes we're closer to the sun than other times, and in the northern hemisphere, because of the tilt of the Earth, that's in the wintertime. So So once per year, usually December or January, we're closest to the sun, and the sun's gravitational pull is stronger on us. And then in addition to that, our moon has an elliptical, not quite round orbit, and there are times when it's also closer. And so we are experiencing a time where both the moon and the sun are simultaneously the closest they could be to the Earth inside their relative orbits. The king tides indicate how high the ocean will get as the climate gets warmer and sea levels rise. Since the late 1800s, the sea level already has risen globally about nine inches. If we do a great job curbing our greenhouse gas emissions, then sea levels will rise another 10 inches. If we do a bad job and don't curb our emissions, it could be another eight feet 
in a worst-case scenario. So that's why volunteers are taking pictures of the king tides now and sending them off to environmental scientists like Carrie Batha at the California Coastal Commission. Because there's nothing like getting real evidence from the ground to show you, you know, where the water is going to go. Scientists call it a window into our future as sea levels rise. But Batha says evidence has revealed that it's not just a problem for coastal residents. Kind of an evil twin of sea level rise is that the coastal groundwater table will also rise as sea levels rise. Recent research out of UC Berkeley found that 145,000 California residents live near a hazardous facility that's at risk of flooding by 2100. Think power plants, oil refineries, and industrial facilities. And when you think about things like industrial sites, there might be pollutants buried in the soil that haven't been exposed to water for a really long time. And when groundwater rises, those pollutants could be mobilized. And disadvantaged communities are six times more likely to live near those facilities at risk of flooding. But Batha says there's good news, too. This year, California allocated more money than ever toward combating the effects of climate change. Sea level rise is making us face kind of unprecedented challenges. But I think that when it comes down to it, we all we all love our shoreline and we want it to continue to be safe and resilient. Back on the beach in Malibu, the king tide is over. The little window into our future only lasts about an hour. But hundreds of photos are on their way to environmental scientists to help us mitigate how much the water rises and plan for a future when it inevitably does. That was Kaylee Wells with KCRW reporting. Today is the first day back to school following the holiday break for lots of school kids in San Diego County. The fall semester was a time for students to try to gain back learning they'd lost. In the fall, they were back in class after more than a year of learning from home due to the pandemic. The COVID shutdown was especially challenging for children with special needs. In September, KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez spoke with one mother who was determined to make sure her son gets the education he needs. Alejandro Blanco is a good speller. He can write his mother's phone number, too. That's something he's learned with her help right here at their dining room table. I know I had to take care of my son. And since then, I love, I love my son with all my heart. And having me, his mommy, and do everything that is in my power to, for him to be okay. Maria Lopez is a single mother raising her son with some help from his grandmother, who he calls mom. Maria is his mommy. Alejandro likes to be called Alex. Monday morning, he joined other students in San Diego Unified for the first day of school. He is now a freshman at Madison High School. And on September 9th, he turns 14 years old. His mother remembers the delight and the distress of the day he was born when the doctor gave her the news. Me, I was like hoping that he was fine and I'd see him when I saw him. He was so beautiful. He told me that he has Down syndrome. So I always ask God, like, I hope my son, he only had like a little bit. 
With the Down syndrome diagnosis, Alex has received special education support and therapy throughout his elementary and middle school years. That includes an annual individual education program called an IEP. That's a federal legal document that outlines goals and services for each student with special needs. Regular meetings for parents and teachers are part of the program. The COVID shutdown forced teachers to scramble to hold IEP meetings online or by phone. I think they thought the federal government was going to come in and give them a pass for all of this. Jennifer Rail taught special education for 30 years. Now she's a professional special education advocate who supports parents during IEP meetings with school administrators and teachers. Really, parents just want to know um, where their kids are at, if they've regressed during this time. Um, If they've made progress with virtual learning, they just want answers. This fall, San Diego Unified is offering online learning through its virtual academy program and will also offer a choice of online or in-person IEP meetings. While Alex made some progress while learning at home, his mother is happy that he's at Madison High School now where he has friends. I want the best for him. And I I know he can learn. A lot. If you if you help, if you work with him, I know he can do a lot of things, and the, and he can be be successful for 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 his and for later on. Yes. Show us what you got, Alex. Later on for this young man means after he turns 21 and ages out of the school support system as an adult. While that's seven years away for Alex, Maria Lopez says every semester counts. She feels most comfortable expressing the love for her son in her first language. Adoro es es todo para mí. Es un amor un amor incondicional, un amor tan grande que yo siento por él. Love modeled and learned in the most important lesson of all. MG Perez, KPBS News. California Report Magazine host Sasha Coca revisits a piece she did about Juanita Moore. Moore appeared in more than 80 movies and TV shows over her seven-decade career. She was a showgirl at 18 at Small's Paradise, at the Zanzibar Club, several venues throughout New York during the Harlem Renaissance. This was in the 30s. That's her nephew, Arnett Moore. He's 75, and he's on a lone mission to get her a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She sang at the London Palladium, at the Moulin Rouge, and she even had a chance to sing and dance with Josephine Baker and other prominent blacks during that time. When Juanita returned to California and got into acting, she found it was hard to break out of stereotypical roles. She was from the boudoir to the jungle. In other words, she played a maid to a savage, and and that was her early career. Mm -hmm. Those were the roles available to to black women at the time. They were the roles available to black women, and one thing she wouldn't do is play the mammified role or the buffoon role. She would not do those. It wasn't until 1959, when she starred in Imitation of Life, that her true talents were finally recognized. I just want to look at you. That's why I came. Are you happy here, honey? Are you finding what you really want? I'm somebody else. I'm white. 
white. Juanita plays Annie, a mom whose light-skinned daughter Sarah Jane rejects her black identity and tries to pass as white. And if by accident we should ever pass on the street, please don't recognize me. I won't, Sarah Jane. I promise. I settle all that in my mind. I remember that it was a very emotional picture, and it still remains so. I once was asked by a friend of mine, did you cry during the imitation of life? I said, no. I didn't want him to think I cried. But yes, I cry even today, and I cried then. Sarah Jane, oh, my baby. My beautiful, beautiful baby. I love you so much. Nothing you ever do can stop. In 1995, Juanita talked about that role in an interview with Turner Classic Movies. She remembered what the film's producer, Ross Hunter, told her when she got the part nearly 40 years earlier. Juanita, he said, uh, I've put my neck out for you. He said, if you know good, the picture's not going to be any good. And it just scared me to death, you know, to, to say that. That's a lot of pressure. And she says that. Really, that was her coming out, too. She had been in movies prior to that, playing small parts and some uncredited parts. But this was her opportunity to bust out at 44 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked to give the award for the best performance by an actress in a supporting role. Or to put it more succinctly, the best picture stealer. Juanita got an Academy Award nomination. The nominees are Hermione Badley for Room at the Top, Susan Kona for Imitation of Life, Juanita Moore for Imitation of Life. Even though she didn't win, Juanita Moore was only the fifth black actor at that point to have been nominated for an Oscar. She was a trailblazer. She opened doors, and today a lot of the actors of color are not having to deal with some of the things she dealt with. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not like it was because of people like her and Sidney Poitier and others that stuck their necks out early on. After Imitation of Life, Juanita hoped she could star in her own films or at least be cast in more substantive roles. But she didn't get offered another part for a year. I didn't want to carry the trays anymore. And I knew that that was all the only kind of job that I was going to get. I knew that, but I did not want to do that. So I don't know if being nominated uh, helped me or not. But true to her passion, she never quit acting. She went on to perform mostly small roles. Her last part was in 2000 as a grandmother in Disney's The Kid with Bruce Willis. She died just before New Year's Day 2014 at the age of 99. Arnett says when he was a kid growing up in L.A., his aunt never talked much about her career He's had to uncover her history himself after her death, including digging up hundreds of photos. Uh, let's see. This is my booklet that I put together on Juanita. That's Juanita, Sam Davis Jr. And they took this, and Sammy wasn't even in the movie, but he was a friend of Juanita. Arnett and is a retired salesman. He doesn't have big connections with the film industry. But over the last two years, he's launched a grassroots campaign for Juanita Moore to get a Hollywood star. You know, in the 50s when I was growing up, when you saw a black person 
on the TV screen. You got excited. And Juanita was that face you saw again and again and again. I'm very proud of her. She had a, a lot of obstacles, the biggest one being racism. She's a star without a star. And here's an update to that story. Arnett Moore submitted his application for the third year in a row this spring, and Juanita Moore lost out to stars like Naomi Watts and Benedict Cumberbatch. But Arnett says he's going to keep trying until his aunt is finally recognized on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That was California Report Magazine host Sasha Coca. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. This time last year, San Diego jazz trumpet great Gilbert Castellanos told us about his ordeal through career-threatening dental and medical problems and the string of groundbreaking dental procedures that allowed him to play again. We asked him about the music that got him through the ordeal, as well as the artists that shaped his musical journey. Here's Castellanos himself with his story and a playlist of his influences. Over the last few years, yes, I have been struggling with not only some dental issues, but with my lower jaw. I started to experience some severe pain when I would play, and uh, the pain just got worse and worse, and to the point where I literally was starting to approach the trumpet from a standpoint where um, every day was a struggle. Uh, I would be very inconsistent with my playing, and uh, some days I would sound great, others it was just, uh, I would sound like a complete beginner. It's been a long journey with the medical procedures that I've been going through, and Dr. Roy Vector, my dentist, I am extremely grateful for him because he literally made um, devices that have never been made before in order for me to continue playing the trumpet. has has gotten me through this this whole um, nightmare in a way but one particular song that really stands out is a a tune entitled there is no greater love by the great Dinah Washington which is my favorite version of this particular uh, song 
for me, it represents me and the music, being in love with the music and the love of the music returning the favor. It's almost like if you take care of the music, the music will take care of you. Brown with strings uh, was definitely the soundtrack to my life and it continues to be the soundtrack to my life. It was a particular album that was introduced to me by my father who is also a musician. I just remember in junior high and even in high school playing along to the records and uh, one of my favorites to play is Embraceable You. Los Panchos, um, that's what they're really known as, uh, but everybody calls them Trio Los Panchos. But Los Panchos, um, that's really my roots. That's where, that's how I grew up. I grew up around an environment where my mother would be singing around the house and my father would play all of these uh, particular songs that I grew up listening to by Los Panchos uh, in, his, in his groups. And that's how I learned about my heritage, my Mexican heritage, by learning uh, beautiful songs, boleros like Solamente Una Vez. Solamente una vez, amé la vida. Solamente una vez, espina Nada más en mi huerto brilló la esperanza 
la esperanza que alumbre el camino de mi soledad. Una vez nada más. One of my favorite songs of all time is Reasons. And uh, that particular song I would play when I had my Hammond B3 quartet. That was like a, a part of uh, my, my set. And I would play it probably three, four nights a week. But uh, I just grew up around a lot of women and, and they all loved Earth, Wind and Fire. And it was just a natural thing for me to embrace that and, and to also make it a part of my life and, and part of my uh, musical taste. Feruz, uh, there's a very interesting story behind this particular song that I that I picked. When I heard her sing, I was just mesmerized by her voice. Um, I was so intrigued by her and moved by her that I started to do some more research on her and uh, found out that she is considered like the musical icon of Lebanon and they would play her every morning on the loudspeakers. And there's a song in, in, that's really kind of a hit. It's called La Tansani. La Tansani, Adar Rabi, Tilalun Azawari, Lahlunani, Wafirruba, Tayrun Waji, Yahki Anil Malahi, Fimaufini, La Tansani, Zahrudur. I decided to adapt that for uh, one of my albums and record it as a jazz version. And that one is also on my album Underground. And so you can hear a jazz version of a Feroz tune played with a uh, with jazz instruments. She not only was an influence with her music, but also how I approach the trumpet, because when I play the trumpet, I don't want to play the trumpet. I want to sing through my trumpet. I think I own three copies of Bags and Train on vinyl, and I also have um, the CD version, and I still have the original pressing that I just played to death. You can't even put it on the record player anymore because it won't even play. 
Uh, but I still own that copy that I grew up listening to, just uh, dissecting it and transcribing uh, songs off the album and memorizing the solos and, you know, pretending that I was in the band. And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, one of those albums that, that I, I always encourage all my students um, and fellow musicians to to really listen to because it's one that's uh, more of, a, of a, an obscure album by John Coltrane that doesn't really get a lot of attention. I believe there's a song on there called The Night We Called It A Day. say that I wasn't able to play the trumpet again. I would have found another format to express my my music and to to get to get it out. Um, my sound is not in my trumpet. My sound is in my head, and I can approach music from any standpoint. It's it's really uh, the way the easiest way to describe it. Picture the trumpet being the vehicle, and then picture your sound which is in your head being the steering wheel so I can just take that steering wheel and put it on any instrument and uh, if I work hard enough I can I can still produce my sound and and uh, get get the, the message out through music that way um, it may take me a little longer to figure out how to play saxophone or how to play piano uh, but it's it's all there it's it's everything is in my head and that's why I love teaching because um, I've always had that um, to fall back on in case, um, you know, I ended up being paralyzed or, um, you know, my lips sealed together where I couldn't play any wind instrument. So um, the power of music is just unbelievable uh, beyond beyond words. It's so spiritual and um, healing and, and, and you can approach it from so many different points of view. That was jazz trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.